Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligent Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Language is perhaps humanity's most astonishing accomplishment, but one that remains poorly understood. On this episode of the podcast, we were joined by Nick Chater, Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School, and Morton H. Christiansen, Professor of Psychology at Cornell University. Together, in their latest book, The Language Game, they upend our traditional understanding of language, arguing that it's not based on a set of fixed rules, but on a constantly evolving series of flexible conventions. This conversation is full of fascinating insights and surprising examples that will leave you rethinking everything you thought you knew about the way we speak and interact with one another. Our host for this episode was journalist Christine Rowe. Here's Christine with more. So first of all, I'm very intrigued by this idea of charades. Why is it such a powerful way of talking about how language develops? Well, because it relies on as much as what the person who was watching this charade, the one you're playing with, as well as the person talking. So oftentimes when people have been studying language that are primarily focused on sort of essentially language as a monologue as opposed to a dialogue. And that had led to certain ways of, of looking at how language is acquired, how we use language and how language has evolved. But once you start realizing that, of course, language, if it is for communication, which we think it is, then importantly, it's created in dialogue. And then when you think about that, then we can understand that what we are trying to do is not just talking, but we're actually trying to evoke images or ideas in other people's head. And that's exactly what we're doing when we're playing charades. And to add a tiny thing to that, I mean, you might think it's just obvious that language has evolved for communication. I mean, what else could it possibly be is a kind of intuitive thought. But that's not actually the way a great many people in the language sciences have thought. So Noam Chomsky, who's the, really the father of generative linguistics, the dominant approach to linguistics since the 50s, explicitly argues that language is not primarily for communication, it's primarily for thinking. So there is this kind of idea of an internal monologue that runs through your mind as you think. And if it's the case that that's really what language is really doing, then the monologue perspective doesn't look so strange. But of course, we go back to the intuitive idea that really it's communication, which is what's, what language is all about, but communication takes two. And so it's trying to, as, as Morton says, it's trying to evoke the thoughts that are in my mind, in your mind. And that requires thinking about what you know and what I know and what we share and what's likely to trigger what kind of thoughts in your mind. And that requires imagination and creativity. It's not something that is, as it were, a kind of an algorithm, something that can be done sort of math- with pure mathematics. As it were. And it's not just about communication to get across a point that's essential for survival. I mean, we're talking about play here. So can you talk about the significance of the title of the book, The Language Game? Yes, the idea of the title, The Language Game, it partly goes back to Ludwig Wittgenstein, the philosopher, who explicitly talks about language in the context of games. So the idea is that you should think of language as embedded in social interaction. So 
I might be asking you to fetch me something or you might be wanting me to, to help you with something. So I'm playing a game which I'm saying, you know, could you get that for me or pass me that cup or I'd like some tea. And there's a kind of very, very sort of simple interaction, which is not just about sending messages to each other, but also it's about interacting, actually doing things together. And understanding the relationship of between language, those uh, actual actions is very important. Uh, but also thinking of language in a very local way. So language is working in the context that we're actually in. So if I'm saying, can you pass me the cup? All I need to do is to indicate it's that thing I want. I don't have to have some general theory, theory or some general sense of, well, cups, what are they? What's that sort of metaphysical basis? You know, is every possible object you could imagine, is it a cup or is it not a cup? You don't have to worry about that. Because you just have to give me a good, good enough clue to think, oh, that's the one I mean. And of course, that fits with the charades point as well, that in charades, you know, if I'm doing a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex action because I want to convey Jurassic Park, you might say, well, is it is it Tyrannosaurus Rex or is it some other dinosaur? Well, it doesn't matter. It just has to be good enough to solve the problem in front of us. So the idea of the language game is that we're, we're always playing these little games with each other and the localness and the specificity of them is kind of basic and they always require imagination to, to fill them in. But of course, we play lots of games gradually. We start to transfer our play from one game to another game to another game. So we start to generalise and the language and our abilities to apply it becomes more and more broad. But ultimately, we should think of it as a sort of local process rather than thinking of it as something monolithic, thinking there's this, this thing, the English language or or any language, specific language, and it has a sort of fixed set of meanings and a fixed grammar, and that, that whole thing is kind of sort of set in stone. The language game idea is this much more sort of moment-by-moment, moment, local, invented, creative than that. You make this point in the book that every person develops their own version of the language they speak. There's no single authority, although some languages are attempting to create some sort of official body for regulating language, but there's no one version of the English language, for instance. Why do you think this idea is so compelling to a lot of people that there is one perfect standard form of the English language? Part of it might come from things we learn in school. So one of the things we learn in school is that you're not supposed to split infinitives or you're not supposed to have prepositions dangling at the end of sentences. So there have always throughout time been people have been trying to sort of kind of straight jacket language. They, they kind of want one proper way of talking. So that, of course, is a very prescriptive way of thinking about language. But what we are interested in is actually what's going on in the head of people. What is the kind of communicative linguistic skills that they're using when they're interacting with one another? And when you look at that, it becomes clear that we actually have, through our different experiences with languages growing up, we develop slightly different variations on the same language. And one of the things, for example, that's been shown in, in much of psycholinguistics is that we can actually measure those differences. So some people, even for the same sentences, take longer, have a harder time comprehending certain kinds of sentences and, uh, rather than others. So it's not just a matter of, for example, the words we know, but it's also goes down to the way we process language as well. And I think another small thing to add to that is that, again, it, really intuitively, if we had no recourse to sort of standard theory in linguistics and language sciences, we might think, well, obviously, language is just, just a skill like any other skill. I mean, it's like you're playing an instrument or, or learning to play football, and people are obviously going to differ in how good they are at it and how they do it in all kinds of ways, and you would just expect that. But again, that's not actually what the language scientists have been telling us for the last sort of 50 or 60 years. The assumption that has often been made, at least, is that language really isn't like a normal skill. It's a, something special. It's genetically wired into us. It's the same for everybody, as long as language develops normally. It's, it's a bit like the development of an organ. So it says the language is the same from one person to the next, rather like the lungs are the same. And the idea that has been prevalent in, for example, Stephen Pinker's The Language Instinct, very, very excellent and influential book, but very much in a different tradition from the one we're working in, um, is that 
each of us has this same genetic blueprint for language, and therefore our languages essentially are deep down the same. And of course, the, I think the results of, as Morton's implying, the results of sort of deep, more detailed experimentation on how people process language is quite the opposite. Uh, really, each of us is different with different levels of skill, different ways of doing things. But as long as we overlap enough, we can still play the language game successfully. It's interesting, this idea that language is actually intensely individualistic and not something universal in the way that we express it. You talk a bit about how there are ways for parents to encourage the development of sophisticated language skills in children, even from a very young age, for instance, by talking to the child about something that they're very interested in. Can you talk a little bit more about the way that we can encourage the development of really strong language skills? One of the, the most important things, and it's actually something that starts very early on, is that babies early on learn that language is all about taking turns. So even before they can actually say any words, they might sort of say, and then the parents will respond to it as if they're talking to them and we learn to take turns. So later on, that's been once they start picking up words and start interacting with the parents and other people around them, there's been a focus on just getting children to learn more words. Unfortunately, though, that is not just about learning more words. What we really need to do is to have them become better at essentially playing linguistic charades. What children are learning to do when they're learning languages, they're learning this charade-like playing skill. And then to do that, they have to learn, they have to do some charades. That's the thing that really matters. So spending lots of time engaging with children and playing with them you know, with the medium of language and engaging in some common interest, that's the thing that seems to be really critical. While we're debunking common myths about language, another one is this persistent idea, especially perhaps among older generations, that language is a fixed thing and any deviation from tradition is bad. Why is that idea so persistent? Not sure why it is persistent, but but as something about it feels perhaps more comfortable if, if it was the case that language didn't change as much as it do. But even within our lifetimes, our, our language actually changed. And that's actually like a very interesting study of the way Queen Elizabeth produces vowels across time. And what they found that by analyzing the vowels that she produced in her Christmas speech every year over 40 years, they found that the Queen no longer speaks the Queen's English of 40 years ago. Instead, what she does, she actually speaks more like what the common people would speak back 40 years ago. So she has moved the way she uses her vowels, but so has the people on the street. And so she still sounds different from the man or the woman on the street. What it indicates is that our own language changes and we don't even know it ourselves. So of course, the, the words that we use change across time. We would like to think that there's something stable about our own language, yet that's not actually the case. And that might be why it feels uncomfortable to think about language changes across time, but, but yet they do. And this idea that language is in continual decay has been a very common one, of course. So it's very easy, particularly going back to the kind of school grammar perspective on language, to think that any change must be deviation from the one true way of speaking, the one we sort of think we must have learned at school. Of course, none of us really learn language at school. We all learn language talking to each other and talking to our parents. We don't actually, we don't actually go to school and get drilled on the, you know, the precise grammar of any language. We can't learn that way. But we have this sort of sense that any changes must be degenerative. And that has been absolutely persistent across all languages and across centuries. Scholars and politicians and people of all shapes and sizes have been saying that language is decaying. We can scarcely comprehend each other anymore. And of course, there's a sense that once language starts to decline, that our ability to clearly express ourselves will also collapse. And I think one of the reasons, I mean, it's a complicated question, but one of the reasons I think this is true is that often what happens is that um, distinctions that seem very important start to get blurred. 
So people start to use a word with one meaning in a slightly broader way. So something like an sort of example from my own childhood, when I was a child, pathetic meant something worthy of sympathy rather than hopeless. Now that's now, I mean, pathetic can still mean worthy of sympathy, but it mostly now just means generally hopeless. So for people of my generation and older, there's this sort of slight nagging feeling that a word has really lost something important here. It's a terrible distinction being missed. But of course, what actually happens in general in language is that as distinctions get blurred, new words start to take their place. So new new ways of expressing the thing that we want to express. If there's an important distinction. We'll find a way of, of describing it. We don't really have much of a sense of that new stuff. In fact, we're also rather suspicious of it. You know, these, these newfangled words, I mean, we don't, we don't like them. They're not proper words at all. So there's this general sort of suspicion of the new and the fear that it always being eroded. But in reality, there's always this process of collapse and rebirth, which has always been going on throughout the history of all languages. I admit that my bugbear, one of them, is the eroding distinction between literally and figuratively, so that so many young people, especially now, use literally to mean figuratively. But I think I need to let that one go and accept that we will find new ways of expressing literally. I'm totally, I'm totally with you on that one, but I realise, yes, it's a lost cause and it doesn't really matter. Well, on this topic, how has the rise of the internet shaped the way that language is changing? I mean, has it accelerated the speed of that change or no? Is this just along the same continuum of linguistic change we've already seen? It's probably contributed to a speed up of the change because we are we become exposed to many more variations than what we'd have become exposed to previously. So for example, we, we might become more exposed to variations of English, say, that are not spoken in the area that we live, because we can watch them on the internet or we can read it on the internet and so on. And also just in terms of things like texting, that also affects how we interact. And you know, for a little while, there was a lot of concerns about young people texting too much and that would ruin their language skills and so on. And it turns out to be not the case at all. And in fact, every time a new technology has come around, there's always been people worried about that this, this would ruin the world for the young people. So in fact, when reading was first popularized so with the Gutenberg print, press, there was a lot of concern about now with all these people reading, that would just ruin their minds and so on. But of course, these days we're concerned that people are not reading enough. And even that was the case with the uh, telephone as well, that it would ruin the way people were interacting. So there's always concerns about when new technologies come, that it changes language. But because language is like a living thing, it changes all the time, then it's just another contribution to, to change. A couple of, sort of small points. One is that it's true the internet um, has completely changed the speed with which we're able to pick up ways of speaking from other places. And of course, so, so has just the rise of media in general. The international nature of certainly English means that you know, I, I can learn phrases from far-flung parts of the world, which I'd never come across before. Um, but of course, it also has a very stabilising effect as well. So it means that because we can all do that, to some extent, the language and the, the, the idioms and so on that we use may be more similar across different parts of the world because these different bits of language aren't just evolving independently. That type of effect is also caused by the rise of literacy. So as soon as you start to write a language down, it becomes much more stable because we're all reading the same word. Whereas if we're just living in different places, we're speaking our language purely orally, then language can converge much more quickly. So I think there are both interesting ways in which being more densely interconnected as a network of speakers makes us more similar to each other, though not certainly the huge local variations. But it also means we, we can learn from each other more quickly. 
picking up on Morton's point about texting, one of the things that's very interesting to sociolinguists, the people who study how language depends on the nature of the sort of social relationships we're in, is we all have lots of different ways of speaking. Kids speak differently to their parents and their teachers and each other, and we all speak differently to babies. And so we have lots of different ways of speaking depending on social context. And we don't have trouble with this. And it's not surprising we don't, because in, in most parts of the world, multilingualism is completely normal. The human brain is perfectly able to learn two or three or more languages, completely different languages, perfectly successfully. So learning a few different variations of the same language is really very straightforward. So the idea that um, learning to text is just going to be such a baffling, incredibly complicated process for the poor brain that we're going to be totally unable to enunciate normal English sentences when we need to is completely wrong. And as Morton says, that that kind of fear has been dogging us forever, but it, it tends to be allayed after a few decades. Well, some of these fears, as you touched upon, seem tied to nationalism or the importance of regional identity. So this idea among some speakers of British English, for instance, that the creeping Americanization of English is threatening British English. Are these relatively new fears? Are they well-founded? What do you think about those? I'll to answer that one as a British uh, English speaker, I suppose. Um, I mean, I, I think it's pretty long, long tradition, really. Um, yeah, so I, I think there's always been this sense that whichever version of a language you speak, you tend to think, well, that is the canonical way. Of course, that's especially true if the and language originated in your country. This is a completely fictitious belief, of course, because the actual way in which English was spoken, if you went back to the, the period when English was, was radiating out from Britain to other countries, I mean, it was it's very different from the way we speak now. So the idea that this is a canonical way is how you know, sort of British people on the BBC speak today. That's that's what proper English is. And that's completely crazy. But I think that's just a long-standing sort of um, concern. It very much relates to the, the sort of sense that there's a one true language and we all ought to speak it, but uh, it doesn't really have any proper basis. What are the implications of your book for ways to combat discrimination based on language? That's quite a weighty question, I realise. I mean, it's a very hard, weighty question, a very important one. I know that one of Morton's colleagues, he will know more about this than I do, has done quite a lot of work on the way in which language, and in just the way we speak, but also the words we choose and so on, can be a very important way, sadly, of discriminating against people just as physical traits are, and, and indeed, for that matter, religious identity and so on. I mean, this is, you know, this is a potentially very big obstacle to a sort of a fair and just world, I think, that uh, language does seem to be used as a marker of things which are then viewed as important signifiers of a social position or being worthy of respect and so on. I mean, how we deal with these problems is very hard to disentangle from this sort of general problem of combating prejudice and creating greater equality. But I think one of the things that we do need to be doing as language scientists, particularly, we have many quibbles with the way the language sciences have developed over the last 60 years or so, although what we're saying in the language game is not radically different from what many people would also say, but it is radically different, I suppose, from the, what, what became the kind of received wisdom. But language scientists in general have always really been pushing very hard against this idea that there's a right way to speak, there's a right way to pronounce words, the idea of that there's a sort of clear and appropriate pronunciation and enunciation and other ways of speaking are kind of muddled, kind of murky jumbles. And, and the more you know about language, I mean, the more ludicrous that perspective becomes, because in fact, all kinds of, you know, all sorts of, kinds of things which are viewed as, as slang or dialects turn out to be just as rich and complex and intricate and have you know, all kinds of clever and rich patterns in them, just exactly the same as, as standard English or standard the standard form of French or any other language. So there's absolutely no sense looking at the, the richness and complexity of the structures that people are learning and generating. There's nothing nothing there which says, oh, this is a, a kind of a, a grander thing and here's something which is a degenerate form. It's completely the opposite. Wherever people produce the variations in the way they speak, those, those variations just turn out to be you know, creative, innovative and interesting. <laughs>
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I was really interested in the book's discussion of Danish and why it's so difficult even for Danish children to learn as a first language. I mean, I'm used to the idea of certain languages being difficult for secondary learners, but as a primary language, that was really fascinating. When I first discovered this, I, I was surprised myself. So clearly at some point, Danish people do learn to speak Danish. But what was interesting, as you point out, is that it's, it's been well known that Danish as a second language is, is quite hard for a lot of people. But what the people I've been working with and others have found is that, that Danish kids too have problems learning Danish. And the reason for that, we think it has to do with the, the basic sound structure of the language. So Danish has a lot of vowels and it also has a tendency for speakers to swallow the end of syllables such that in many cases, you will lose a lot of information that would otherwise be useful for figuring out where words begin and others end. So for example, if I give you an example in Danish, that probably just sounds like a lot of very strange sounds to you. And so what we found in experiments with children, for example, is that they have problems uh, figuring out where words begin and end when they happen in these kind of long sort of vowel-like sequences. And we found that that affects their ability to pick up vocabulary. So they're behind, for example, their kids learning Swedish or Norwegian or other European languages. And they also have problems learning the Danish past tense system, which is fairly simple. And that's even compared to children from Sweden and Norway that pretty much have the same past tense system as Danish does. In fact, it takes Danish children two years more. And so what we see is an effect of the sound system of the language is affecting how Danish children can pick up on other aspects of the language. And then what we also then further looked at, so we were interested, okay, what about adults then? And so what we did, we, we did a number of experiments where we tested adults' ability to process language, and we compared that with Norwegians, adult Norwegians. So Danish and Norwegians are closely related languages. Much of the grammar and the vocabulary is the same, but Norwegians pronounce their consonants. So whereas in Danish, if I wanted to say street, I would say gel. In Norwegian, they say gata. And that means that in Norwegian, you can hear the consonants, but not in Danish. And we found that Danish people would have to rely more on context. So they're essentially much more charades-like in their language abilities. It seems that it might be a disadvantage to be a learner of Danish as your first language because it is so difficult to pick up. But does that bring advantages later on in life in some ways, like the ability to read context more easily? That's a good question, and it's one we, we haven't really 
tested experimentally, but we have some ideas. So, so one thing we do know is that we, we did try to test Danes and Norwegians when they had to listen to speech and noise. And the Danes were actually much better than the Norwegians in doing that because they're used to sort of relying more on context and so on. So in fact, we could make the Norwegians look like Danes by adding noise to the speech simile. One possibility is that Danes might develop sort of a more empathy. So if you all the time have to pay more attention to what the other person might be thinking and saying, that might actually allow you to be more empathetic. Now, we don't know whether that's true or not, but that's one possibility. And you know that could explain why Danes always end up as some of the happiest people in the world, perhaps, because they're actually paying more attention to what other people do. But we don't know that for a fact. So this is just a guess. Wow, that's a fascinating avenue for research. I've been very interested to see in recent years how big world events like Brexit, like the pandemic, like the rise of working from home has shaped linguistic trends. It's absolutely true. Every time there's a new thing to describe, we'll create a new vocabulary to describe it. And, and Brexit, the, the very term Brexit, is, is that we've now forgotten that it's a, it's a kind of neologism. I, mean, I would have understood uh, 30 years ago, but suddenly it's, it's a new thing. Even COVID is a new coinage. The language is continually adjusting to the world we have to talk about. It's, it's going like charades. If we have a different bunch of things to describe or a different set of objects to communicate about, we'll start to use either new terms or we use existing terms in new ways. So, for example, in, in the case of the internet, um, in the very idea of a net, electronic network, I mean, that's very different from a phishing net, but we don't really notice that, um, or a web, similarly. Uh, all the terminology we have for thinking about electronic communication um, is essentially just grounded in everyday stuff, which we're just you'd be just mutating that and pulling it across. So sometimes we use new terms, but often, most often, actually, we just use existing terms and for different purposes. And we do that so seamlessly we don't notice. So I think one of the things that is very nice, nicely indicates is the inherently very metaphorical nature of language. So we don't think of thinking about a web, a worldwide web of information, as being like a spider's web. But that's sort of why we why we make the, the the links, why the same word is used. But we don't think of it as a metaphor, really. We just say, well, it's just, it just is a web of, of information, literal truth, as it were. But language is always doing that for us. It's always allowing us to take a set of ideas from one domain and, and use it for another. And another example, not from, from world events or recent developments, is just but something that we're very familiar with, is talking about mental concepts. So it's the way that we think about minds is something that is very grounded in the way we think about physical objects. So George Lakoff and Mark Johnson in particular in their great book, Metaphors We Live By, stress this a great deal. The idea, if I think about giving somebody an idea or giving someone an idea or picking up an idea or trying to get my point across, um, these are all sort of spatial uh, ways of thinking about minds. There's something in my head and I want to get it into your head, so I'm sort of sending it to you and you're not getting it. Or, or maybe I'm making an argument and it's, and you're undermining my argument and I'm strengthening my argument. So we can have a kind of um, castle defence and attack kind of um, sort of perspective on argumentation. And this is happening all the time. So as as the world changes, as new technologies appear, as new political realities occur, we're always going to be um, mutating our language to deal with the you know, the world that we're actually facing. And is there anything specifically about English that makes it adept at playfulness, at inventing new words in any ways? Well, certainly English is very flexible with the possibility for taking, say, a noun and turning it into a verb or vice versa. So we have, for example, Google and we are Googling and so on and so forth. So, so English is very good at doing that. Other languages are more strict in, in the way you can do that. So that's clearly an advantage for, for English. But in general, most languages have 
various kinds of ways in which you can add new information in, even though it, it may not be as easy as English. But of course, English also has the advantages that it has so many speakers and, and so many even second language learners of English. And that allows many, many new words to come in all the time from all over the world. And that sort of gives English sort of a treasure trove of all sort of new expressions, new ways of thinking about the world that sort of come, come into English. Whereas other languages, you know, smaller languages, it's much harder. So they typically have to learn from another sort of large language like English or French or Spanish. Another way in which English is unusual, though not that unusual, is it's a blend of sort of Germanic and Latin influences. So for a lot of things we describe, we actually have both a Germanic and a uh, a Latin root, so to describe them, so so that means that there's just more overload. There's just more extra ways of saying things than there would otherwise be, and that's again helpful if you're if you're trying to adjust to new situations. You've just got a you know, just a bigger, more diverse vocabulary to start with. So English has its advantages. I mean, it's nothing as we've said before. There's no sense in which one language is better or more powerful than another because every language is continually in flux and is continually adjusting to our purposes so if we have a gap we have we, we fill it we create something to fill it so human beings are clever enough that they're not as it were hemmed in by an insufficient language so i hear you saying that english has a very large vocabulary and a large body of speakers and that adds to the richness of playing with language a counterpoint would be that i'm living in argentina and somebody was telling me he thinks that english is slightly impoverished because we don't really use diminutives which they use in spanish to add ito to the end of words to make them seem smaller and cuter so he was saying he thinks that in English, it's harder to express affection, which I thought was an interesting point. Can you talk a little bit more about how linguistic constraints don't necessarily constrain how we think, but they do shape it perhaps in some subtle ways? What language does is it makes certain things easier to express and certain things harder. Everything's possible because as with Shiraz, it's kind of an illusion to think that there's, you know, I've got a fixed repertoire of Shiraz and if I need to communicate gone with the wind, I'm just utterly, totally stumped. I'll find a way of doing it somehow. It's not that there are things that are unsayable in one language, but it is easier to say some things than others. So, so that's clearly right. And that's in the same way that is true for something like um, any other kind of notation, like music. So, you know, in musical notation, it'll be just quite easy to write stuff down if it stays in one key. And if it's in jumping around all over the place, it's all sharps and flats start to appear. And if you have to then suddenly notate things which are in between semitones, oh, it gets really tricky. Or if, if the you know, if the time signature is extremely peculiar. So it's not impossible to express anything in musical notation pretty much, but depending on how your notational system works, it's going to make some things easier and some things more difficult. And the same, of course, with maths. Um, so developing notation is a very, very important thing. It allows us to convey information in an efficient way, but it does create a bias. And of course, that's absolutely true with languages as well. So maybe, maybe English is, is biasing against cuteness, and that's you know, something we should definitely try to repair. <laughs> But I think there's, there's another thing that also, given the example that you just gave with, say, Argentinian, Spanish and English. So, so one of the things that happens is that we oftentimes are less affected by emotional terms in a second language. And that's why oftentimes people sometimes use swear words way too much in a second language because it doesn't sound as bad in that second language. So it may also translate to how we feel about you know, emotion being expressed in a second language. So it may be that that your friend is is actually because it's his second language rather than his first language. I'm assuming it's his second language. And there, therefore, it might be that he goes up against this bias that we have in second language. So it's just that there's something about our first language or languages that seems to better allow us to express an emotion. And in second languages, it's much harder. Now, of course, there are always exceptions. So some people are particularly good at expressing emotions in other languages. But, but if you look at you know poetry in English over time, I, I'm sure that poets would disagree with that. So you have 
have you know, Lord Byron, you had Tennyson and so on and so forth. All these great poets, and they clearly could express very strong emotions using English. But yes, we may not have diminutives in English, but there's many other ways of combining things. So in fact, having this very large vocabulary can allow you to potentially express all sort of facets of emotions that you may not be able to do in, say, Spanish. Again, I'm not going to say that English is less emotional and more emotional, but I think once we look at it all together, I think every language have a way of expressing ourselves. I mean, I think if somebody once said something like, you get the language that you deserve. So maybe English speakers do deserve a language with that emotion. I don't know. That's fascinating, yes. When multilingual people are working in different languages simultaneously, are they playing with language? Are they creative with language in different ways to people who speak just one language? That's a good question. There's been a lot of debate as of late with regard to the benefits of knowing more than one language. And clearly, it's oftentimes possible that being able to use two different languages, you might be able to express something in one language more easily than in another language, given, for example, what Nick said before. So actually being able to trade up between the two languages might be helpful because you might be able to sort of develop an idea in one language that would be a little harder to develop in another language. Not impossible, but a little harder. And that might actually contribute to sort of more flexibility in the way you can express yourself. Having said that, that's also the flip side of that is that you can actually get interference between multiple languages. So my native language is Danish, but obviously I speak English as well. And sometimes I get interference between the two languages. And I sometimes, if I'm talking to somebody in Danish, sometimes English would intrude without me even thinking about it. I'm not even sure whether I'm speaking this language or the other language. So it can also create interference and, and confusing. But, but generally, it is useful learning more than one language because oftentimes a language can be also an entryway into a culture that's associated with that language. So if you're in an English-speaking community, being able to speak to folks there in their language, so to speak, that is a way in which you can become more immersed in the culture itself. And so that's another uh, potential advantage that people have talked about. It's very hard to have sort of chit chat and sort of interpersonal, close interpersonal interactions in a language you're not very familiar with. So so if you're going to have, you know, if you're going to get to, to know a cultural or an individual person very well, you have to have a shared language you're both extremely familiar with. And if that's not the case, it's going to be a struggle. So for example, that's the kind of thing that's not going to be easily taken over by clever language translation software. We do quite well for translating text, but it's going to be very difficult to translate fun chit-chat and conversation. And the other thing that about learning languages, of course, is it makes you aware of the structure of language. So if you only have one language and you're immersed in it, you can kind of be unaware of what a strange thing language is and how remarkable. And it's only when you see that, oh gosh, this is the only one of a ton of ways of expressing things, that it starts to look remarkable and strange and fascinating. So I think by looking at other languages, that actually does change your perspective on your own language and just also the human condition. It makes one realise that things that can seem inevitable, of course we have nouns and verbs, but of course um, we have we divide the world into sort of dogs and cats and trees. Well, actually, you know, all the things one thinks are inevitable turn out. There'll always be a language out there, or that seems to be the generalisation that surprises you. If computers have access to all of the world's languages, to every form of written output ever made, why aren't they better at being linguistically creative in a way that resounds with us humans. I think our perspective would be it very much goes back to this point about the charades. So what those computers are doing, and they do it fantastically well, is they're, they're taking, as you say, this vast amount of text, much of it, of course, in English, but a lot, a lot in other languages, especially machine translation, especially looking at texts which are in multiple languages, so things like UN documents and the Bible and so on. So there, they're able to both 
uh, to actually make, make a mapping between languages, and you've got, got a lot of data out there to find patterns within each language. So the computer is in a, in a kind of rather cutting and pasting kind of way, saying, oh, I've seen this snippet here, and it seems to correspond to this snippet over here. It's not as simple as that, of course. All those, that sort of snippet um, alignment is very, very clever because the system is also learning the patterns within each language. So it's saying, oh, well, this snippet, say I took a snippet of English, turned it to a snippet of French, and did that for all the snippets. They wouldn't really make any sense as French. So I must adjust all that to make sure that the thing that comes out is actually actually coherent French. It's an incredible thing. It's a phenomenal progress in the last, what it was, 30 plus years since Morton and I finished our PhDs, or whatever it is, some similar figure. It never seemed possible to us that there would be machine translation of the quality that there is now. It's just incredible. But it hasn't been done in the way that people were trying to do it back then. So the way people were typically trying to do it was they were trying to get machines to understand, to translate language into some sort of logical form, which would be a kind of applicable to any language. So you say English, turn it into this logical language, then you turn it back into whatever you wanted to do. So you go through a a logical language which was supposed to capture the meaning. And the way it's not it's not been done like that, it's been done in this sort of snippet-like way. You take you take your snippet of English and you turn it into a snippet of French. And, and, and you can do all of that without any understanding at all. And a human language seems, because it really is ultimately a charade-based thing, is completely different from that. I mean, language is all about meaning. It's all about, we're in this situation, I want the cup, I've got the tea and it's milk and I'm here I want you to pass me that thing so I'm going to do some gesture or action or say a few words which are going to get you to do the thing I want you to do so it's all about meaning so when computers are dealing with language you should think of them as taking a totally different strategy to the way we're doing it an important thing to add is that the way we look at language you know through the charades metaphor is that language is fundamentally collaborative and the, the thing that computers are not doing anything to collaborate they're just doing whatever they're being told so so even though they can create all sort of interesting cases so in fact in uh, I'm currently working with some of these systems to create poetry and they can actually create quite interesting poetry like Emily Dickinson or Lord Byron and so on but what they cannot do is interact and trying to understand one another in the way that we are trying to do now when we are communicating for you know for the sake of this uh, conversation that we're having right now that's what they're not good at they can do answers given all the stuff they've come across before and trying to piece something together based on what they've come before, but they cannot collaborate in the sense that we are doing right now when we are interacting. So to circle back to what we were talking about at the very start of the conversation, computers are essentially delivering monologues. They're not in dialogue. They're not in play with others. And that actually is a bit of a relief to those of us who work in language and are sadly limited by being humans. Thank you, Nick and Morton. That was Nick Chater and Morton Christensen, authors of The Language Game, which is now available from Penguin. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I have been Christine Rowe. Thanks for listening.